Welcome back to the Beyond the Phone podcast. I'm Yosef. I'm joined by Arif as usual. Terry unfortunately can't make it today, but we're joined today by a special guest, BBC sports journalist Adam Samuel. Now, the group stages of the World Cup have just wrapped up as we are filming. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to start the podcast with just things that have uh, sparked our interest and things we've liked the most so far from the tournament. Adam, as the guest, what has uh, sparked your interest from the group stages? I guess it's a pretty obvious one, but I've been pretty fascinated by Japan from the first game through to this one. Um, I think the manager, uh, how can I put this nicely, is a bit of a maverick. I think he makes bizarre decisions. Um, He changed five attackers against Costa Rica in the game that he could have qualified in and against the weakest team in the group on paper. Obviously the weakest team in the group, let's be honest. Um, and then lost that game and putting himself in a position where he has to beat Spain. And he did beat Spain, but again, he he had a midterm of Brighton, who was their best player in the first two games, on the bench. Uh, he had Rito Durrani on the bench, who was the best player in the first game. Uh, Asana, who scored the winner against Germany, was on the bench for all three games. It was like he was starting weaker teams on purpose so as to hit teams later in games. And it's just such a, it's just such a risky tactic. It didn't really make sense to me, but it worked. He ultimately he beat Germany, he beat Spain, and he lost to Costa Rica. Um, now they're going through. They're going to play Croatia. Obviously, you don't want to, especially in this World Cup, you don't want to um, make predictions. But for me, they, they should handily beat Croatia if they choose the right team. They've got Tommy Asa to come back in, who's been injured throughout the group stages as well. Um, so yeah, I find Japan really interesting. I was really disappointed to see Belgium uh, eliminated. Um, I think they've got enough talent to have actually got quite far into the tournament. Roberto Martinez's insistence on playing Hazard rather than I don't know if you guys watched the game, but like Jeremy Doku was amazing for like the last ten minutes. Um, so yeah, and then afterwards he uh, Martinez was saying like, oh, we've got this golden generation of Doku or Nana. Um, some others and it's like well you didn't play them barely so how can you view that as a golden generation um, so yeah Belgium are disappointing Japan really interesting and uh, I was pleased to see, to see sorry, some African sides going through Morocco deserved to go through uh, like where Senegal done well it's a shame about Idrissa Gay. he's uh, playing against England he's, well he would have been winning his 100th cap and becoming their most cap player ever and now he misses out on that which is really really cruel for a really soft yellow card uh, I feel like Ghana just screwed up completely. Um, their manager is just, just not a good manager, frankly. He's not a manager himself. He, I think he said he's resigning after... Oh, he, he said he's resigning. He's going back to being Dortmund's assistant and he clearly wasn't ready for management. Some of his decisions were just bizarre. Like, why get someone like Tarek Lamptey to be your right-back to do really well in their second game and then bench him for a lesser player who's more defensive in a game that he should really be winning against Uruguay. It's a revenge game. It's got everything going for it and he played defensively. I hate that. I really hate when managers go defensive in games they don't need to. Um, so, yeah, sorry, long answer, but that's those are my answers. With me, the Belgium shock. Personally, I don't think it really was a shock. This team has always underperformed. Um, I believe the best of the golden generation was a couple of years ago. Hazard hasn't been his best, well, at least since he joined Real Madrid. Lukaku, who obviously is not even 100% fit. And De Bruyne seemed, just from interviews he had, he just seemed like the camp was unsettled. So 
Um, with that, I wasn't, I wasn't really surprised. Roberto Martinez, he never should have been the Belgium coach for that long. I don't think, well, well, he hasn't managed players of that level ever at club level. He went from a Wigan job to a Belgium job with the greatest of a generation. I don't, personally, I just didn't think it'd ever work. Um, I think just sticking to the back three as well, it, it left, it, it meant the attackers couldn't really flourish ever. Like De Bruyne was playing pivot for most of the matches. Um, people are going to clown De Bruyne saying he didn't turn up. He created more than enough chances that any decent striker would have put away. The last game alone, uh, I think Lukaku's XG was higher than the whole creation team, which was ridiculous. So yeah, Belgium, I think, for me personally, that wasn't a shot. As also Adam uh, touched on with the African nations doing so well, Morocco topped their group. And I believe this is uh, Africa's best ever uh, points collection in group stage World Cup games ever, which is brilliant. Um, unfortunately, Ghana couldn't get their revenge. It, it was so sad. Um, uh, Andre Ayew missed the penalty, which he was, I believe, he was the only player from the original 2010 squad. So that could have been a chance for redemption, but unfortunately, it couldn't. However, it's not all doom and bloom for everyone that loves like the WWE style of football um, because South Korea went through. And speaking of South Korea, I'd like to prop up like the Asian nations. Obviously, like I don't think I'm ever going to get a chance in my lifetime to see Bangladesh like be at a major tournament. But you know what? I'll claim any Asian country that's doing well. So South Korea um, are through. Japan are through. Australia are through. But I don't really count them as... Uh, yeah, yeah well, well, under the FIFA rankings, I kind of age up. So, yeah, so it's nice to see, I guess, um, a lot of African and Asian countries doing well at the World Cup. They, they seem like, and it's not just off passion, they're playing really good football as well. You see um, good pressing, you see good positioning, good formations, good tactics. It's like generally good football as opposed to just heart and set pieces and hitting them on a counter set, which I think is great. And yeah, I guess it kind of in line with a lot of European teams on performing. Another team was Germany, which, you know, um, Germany is a really strange one because I think on paper they have really good players, but for whatever reason they didn't click. Um, Jamal Musiala was their, probably their only positive. That kid's sensational. Major loss for England. We'll probably talk about that a bit later. But yes, I guess... That, yeah, that's my, that's my take on it. Yeah, I want to I touch on the, Bel- on the Germany one, sorry, because uh, like how you said about Belgium, how you weren't that su- surprised. I thought Germany had like this weird hype that I thought was a bit undue. I feel like England, for example, doing as badly in the Nations League meant Germany kind of like, you know, went under the radar in that group. Like England were abysmal and they didn't beat us either time. And I, did, I just think they were just like a bit... Their like handy flicks tactics are a bit too high risk, high reward. And, you know, everyone always says, why why is international football so defensive, especially when they're elite teams? And I think Germany shows you why. Where you, I just feel like that, like, say what you want about uh, Southgate, the Schwartz, uh, Santos, you know, Chiche in Brazil, anyone like that. They don't lose that game to Japan. I don't think, I don't think that second goal happens with a long ball over the top. I think they... I think they keep that more steady. I think you're underestimating Japan. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I am. Maybe I am. I think they, I think they could reach. You know what I mean? What they'll face Brazil in the quarter if they get through. 
I genuinely yeah. could see that team in the semi-finals. I think they've got something. I really like their squad depth. I like the, the technical way they play. I really like Japan, man. They'll probably get eliminated 4-0 by Croatia now, but that's just... Yeah, yeah. Sorry, man. Sorry to cut you off anyway. The thing with Japan is... I'm worried about what happens when... Because, like you said, the tactics about... the You know, the big games against Spain and Germany it had all the subs come in that sort of changed the game. Whether that's, uh, you know, poor poor lineup to begin with or good, good like, tactical in-game changes, you know, you can debate about that. But I want to see how they cope if instead of going 1-0 down at half-time, they're 2-0 down. And I think, obviously, Japan are looking going... We'll, we'll take Croatia. But I think Croatia are also looking at it going, they could have faced Spain, they could have faced Germany. I think if you look at Japan's performances in the group stage versus Croatia's, especially the Belgium game, as Arif touched upon, like Lukaku, like, my God. He missed three open goals and one absolute sitter that was offside, but he still missed three open goals. Like, Belgium done more than enough to waltz through. Ugh. And, ugh. Sorry, just some of the, the analysis of Lukaku after the game was really irritating to me. I'm going to mention, actually, it's just like, it was a bunch of strikers in the studio, and there's just no balance to it. They were like, oh, we feel so sorry for him. If he was fit, he, he, he'd score. you don't need to be fit to score an open goal. It's an open goal. They're just making excuses. And then at the end, um, the presenter, whose name I'm not going to say, but it's obvious who the presenter is, was like, ah, normally you have like a, a VT for the end of a, of, of a game, but there's no VT to show him. It's like, there is a VT to show. There's four open goal misses from a world-class, apparently, striker. It was, it was rubbish. But at the same time, we we're supposed to be fair and balanced. There was no balance to that. It was just like, oh, let's protect our mate. It's embarrassing. Croatia should have been out. Japan will destroy them. You heard it here first. I'm I'm not I'm not saying that's not gonna happen. I'm just saying Croatia are a weird team. I wanna see whenever they it feels like in the game they had loads of the ball against Canada, that midfield clicks and sort of takes control of it. I'm not saying they're their favourites. I kinda wanna see how how high that line is, because I think Japan as well seemed like quite a very counter attacking team. Against the one roadblock they faced this tournament against Costa Rica they struggled. But you know, I was just saying, I, I, so I wasn't that shocked about Germany. I think my, but Japan's sort of approach to the World Cup is probably summarises what I thought was my favourite thing. And I see like the underdogs really haven't like approached this in the, in the way of like traditional underdogs. Like I think it's sort of Saudi Arabia set the tone with the high line, which by the way, the coverage of that, I hated at half time when they said, you know, uh, it's risky. I feel like if a team plays a high line, and you have three goals disallowed for offside. That is a high line doing its job. And that's the thing. I feel like of offsides, it's only seen as risky because it's the only form of defending where you get to see what happens if it doesn't work. Let's say, imagine if a team is in the box trying to clear out headers, but like for somehow you could, they can like show and imagine like a edited AI replay of like what happens if a player misses a header, and then like you know you have an open goal to score in. But so I think it, we have our perception that offsides are like more risky than other forms of defending when it isn't. So I thought they played really well. Tunisia, I think if you've seen AFCON, you're aware that Tunisia are a boring, boring team. And we all got played because they were not boring at all. They played some really nice football. I was going to say actually, Tunisia were like 
one of my biggest disappointments because they were so good against. Uh, I can't remember who the first game was. Uh, they drew it. Denmark. Denmark, yeah. And then they lost to Australia. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you, they looked good as well. They lost to Australia. And then against France, they looked good again. They actually got the win of it. It's like, if you don't lose to like one of the worst teams in the tournament, there's three African teams through. Likewise, Ghana fumbled the bag. It's like, it's frustrating because... And something you said about uh, yourself, about like underdogs or whatever. I don't feel like there are really underdogs in this tournament. The, the Asian teams, your Japans, your South Koreas team with players in like the Bundesliga in Spain like they got Premier League players on the bench I'm not that the Premier League's the best league in the world which it is but like they're on the bench so there's depth there Tunisia's got loads of like home based teams but the African Ch- Champions League is clearly churning out really good technical players Saudi Arabia's players were all home based some of their players were really really good like I don't feel like 2002 is the first World Cup I can remember. Saudi Arabia were absolutely battered by Germany 8-0. It's not the same now as it is then. Like Football's a much more insular sport and it's for the best, for sure. Another highlight of the group stages has been the number of players playing for one country that could have very easily represented another country. Probably the most notable example of this was uh, Brio Bolo, the Swiss striker who, when he scored against Cameroon, the country of his birth, he refused to celebrate. Now, I mean, firstly, is have have we seen that in international football? A player refusing to celebrate, like like he scored against his old club in like a that like, like he's moved to in just that window. We have, I ain't seen that before. I'll say it seems like something that would happen at club level. It's like you don't at international level you rarely see a player like refuse to celebrate and that like, show respect to the other country. Uh, yeah, it was, it was it was it was a new celebration. I found it quite interesting. I feel like Jacka might have like. Apologised against Albania, maybe not for scoring, but for like yeah, yeah, playing against that. them or something. But yeah, you're right. I've never seen a, a player not not celebrate a goal. I respect him for it. To be fair, he's just acknowledging that he 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 is more than one ethnicity, not ethnicity, um, nationality. I think Jack is a good example because his his brother plays for Albania. Uh, there's there's two brothers in different uh, countries this tournament. With the Williams brothers, with uh, Inaki playing for Ghana and Nico playing for Spain. I mean, I think the Spain one is a little bit dodgy because obviously it's weird because now he's he's played for them, so it's not like they they sort of wasted it. But I found it very telling that Spain were only interested in him once Ghana wanted him to join their setup. He weren't he, he weren't getting caps before that, and this is a story that I've seen too often. You know, they did the same with Adama Traore when he wanted to join Mali. I mean, from a footballing point of view, I get why you want to hog the talent. And this, this isn't only European clubs that that do this, for example. I'm, I'm aware that the story that I heard recently was uh, of Leon Bailey, when he wanted to get a move out, when he wanted to play for in a club outside of Jamaica for the first time. The Jamaican FA like, made it really difficult for him to leave Jamaica to play football abroad because they were really worried that if he played abroad, he'd switch nationalities. So there is a bit of this, um, uh, you know, there is a bit of like, you want to have the best team you can. But ultimately, I think it, it, it just reflects the fact that people have multiple nationalities. So do you, I, I, I don't see an issue with players maybe wanting to try one country and then changing their mind. Because let's say someone like Inaki Williams, he is Spanish and Ghanaian like it doesn't take away from one whatever team he plays for 
the, the you know because as as the three of us all of us can play for multiple countries uh as well how, how do you think issues like dual nationality should be handled in football something we're going to see more often in football as i guess the sport continues to grow and uh, people integrate and people move about. I think I think it's a fantastic thing that uh, we're going to see a generation of players that are able to represent multiple different nations. Um, my only, I guess, gripe with how the system is right now is one, a player for the senior uh, side, they're unable to represent um, another team if they play a competitive game. And I think that can open up, like, I guess, almost strategic to stop them playing from other nations. And that's my, I guess, a concern of mine is, let's say a player who's eligible for two top um, international nations and then one of them may not need it. And if he goes to the other nation, it would be a problem for them at international level. So they give him a cap and then they don't use him for the next decade or uh, or, or the foreseeable future. So I do think it's it's... It's very difficult. And people's circumstances change as well. Let's say uh, a guy is playing at club level in a certain country with a certain culture uh, and then he moves club and then he spends like 10 years there and that's also someone you can represent. Maybe has a close affinity to, to, to that nation at that particular time in his life. So I think we need to take that into consideration as well. It's, I guess the most prominent example um, at this tournament was Mbolo just because of the fact that he um, did the celebration but we we can look at someone like Jamal Musiala who was um, raised in England um, he came through the England youth set up until I believe under 18 level and then at senior level as he got a move to Bayern and he um, moved in with his I believe his mother's side he just had a closer connection to Germany and represents them at uh, national level so I think it's going to be inevitable that they're going to have to change something in the future regarding uh, caps I think it's got to be more than one because there's going to be kids that are get, giving caps at 18, 19 bigger footballer in nations and then may never get to play international football again or if they just maybe they do get like a couple caps early on but then change in the sense that they move country um, they, glow, they grow a close connection to another nation that they can represent or if they mixed ethnicity as well I think there should be room if you're, if you're eligible like 100% there should be there should be the ability to move about for sure that if for example I moved to Brazil for like a for a year I shouldn't be able to represent the Brazil national team but if if there is someone of mixed nationality that's had like five six caps for a nation but for every reason their circumstances change and they are of mixed ethnicity or mixed nationality and they should be able to check their options and be able to represent another nation if that's how they feel, if they feel that's the right decision for them. I don't actually agree. I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with the system wherein players can play in friendlies and then jump. But if you play in a competitive game, you can't. I mean, plenty of players turn down caps, not necessarily for the bigger nations, but for the bigger nations as well, I'm sure. But the more um, obvious ones, especially recent, for example, like hudson Adoy and Nketiah turning down Ghana. Um, Ghana will still be back in for them in five, ten years, two, three years, if anything. Um, for me, it's like if you make a decision as an adult, you have to stick with that decision as an adult. Um, 
And if like it comes down to it and some manager decides that because you turned down a cap at 19, you can't play for the team, then that just reflects really badly on them. It, to be fair, managers are in it to win games. If you're good enough, they'll choose you. Um, but yeah, so for me, it'd be a bit like, it'd be a bit too club-y, if you know what I mean. Like players going from country to country, like thinking about what they like and then going somewhere else. Like without that kind of um, protection, it'd just be a bit of a free-for-all really. Um, but with regards to like recent instances of players who have been captain and been screwed over, for want of a better word, so like Tomori, for example, could have been playing for Canada and he would have made a big difference with them at the back. Um, obviously, Roy Keane said about Grealish and Vice being poached. Again, those were two guys that made the most of the free, of the friendly system and then decided they'd rather play for the country they are born and raised in. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. That could have been a risk for them, but they took the risk and now they're, they're reaping the rewards. So... Yeah, I think it's a two-way street. Rugby introduced a sort of a new sort of rule, which they've sort of tweaked, like because what's happened to them was something similar. Where let's say a lot like new countries like New Zealand or England would like take a lot of Pacific Islanders and you know maybe give them a cap, especially in something like a Six Nations, so it's a competitive game or something, and then they'll be cap tied. Is so in rugby, there's a time limit. So you even if you like played in the World Cup, I think it's if if you haven't played international football for three years, you can then switch, and I I see that as like sort of a best of both worlds where it would allow players to you know if you if you want to keep that uh, cap or something. But let's be real, someone the players that are saying no, is, most of them are usually on the younger side, and I think they they. I feel like I want to have players should have the opportunity to play for a national side whenever they can. I think it's a privilege that is honestly is 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 once in a lifetime, and I feel like it's almost a bit unfair, especially if you is uh, someone of dual nationality. Let's say someone like Eddie Nkaya, who he could have been called up to Ghana this World Cup. But he he, reju- he, re- he rejected that because he wanted to play for... Uh, he wants to eventually play for England, I, I assume. You know, he's not probably not going to make that squad for like the next three years, four years. He could very easily play for... He could have played for Ghana this World Cup. He has a World Cup experience in case he never makes that England squad. And then if he feels like he's good enough, he could then... Switch or then, but then even still, there's a. It's not like it's something where there's no risk there. He has to then not play international football for a few years. But I just think it gives players a bit more choice. I get that you have to make a decision, but I think I still feel like it. It you need to maybe do something that reflects a more multicultural world, and also I think a way that maybe allows multiple countries to benefit from the role that more, that all of these countries may have played in that player's development. See, I do I, I do like the rugby system and it's one switch only, isn't it? So that, that makes sense. Yeah. That, that is a good system. But for me, it's like if a player does what you suggested with Nketiah there and takes basically the position of someone maybe more deserving, more committed to playing at the World Cup and actually worked for that team to get there and then just bombs out and it's like, yeah, I'm going to play for England in three years. Um, it's just not, it's just pretty immoral, to be honest. 
Um, so the arguments can go both ways. Like it would make sense because the smaller nations would then benefit from loads of players. But for example, I don't know Mali or something or Senegal of old. So many of their players are born in France anyway, so they are benefiting from the system, irrespective to some extent. Just not getting maybe the very, very best of the best that they could get. But uh, I don't know. It's a tough one, but I, I could see both sides of the argument. The system does not exist in any sport right now. But what if if uh, if someone wanted to represent two countries at the same time? So let's say, for example, I'll use myself as this example. I know it sounds crazy. So uh, after Wonder Kid, um, if I didn't have my knee injury at the age of 18. You're right, it does sound crazy. <laughs> at, the, at the age of 18, like um, I'm the next hot prospect for England, right? Like I, I can do, I could do it all. Um, I'm going to be a future England star. But because England has such a huge pool of talent, I might tell Gareth, listen, you don't need me for qualifiers to school a hat-trick against Moldova, can I represent my other nation, Bangladesh, in the Asian Cup qualifiers and, like, help them, elevate them? And then when it comes to the World Cup, can I, I'll be back for the World Cup and then, or I'll be back for the Euros. And obviously, logistically, that sounds crazy, but I think there's, like, a niche for, for example, people like myself or a lot of, I guess, this also may benefit the uh, bigger nations and I guess the super small nations if you have have dual, dual nationalities or can represent two different nations that are on completely different ends of the spectrum it may be possible so I could represent England but also when Bangladesh need help in some of their games I could go and help them out I, I don't know what you guys think of that but that's just something you know what potentially what would you do in a World Cup if let's say hypothetically Bangladesh qualified who do you play for? So, so you play for Bangladesh in England and he's playing against his mates who's played for four years. You can't even be selecting that guy for England, bruv. Like, nah. Didn't think that far ahead, but maybe that's almost like a lone game where you know when you can't play against your parent club, you just got to keep me out of that. Nah, but you, you got to think about how much like the media has like, let's say, questioned players who have been born outside of England. Let's say like a Raheem Sterling or the pastor John Barnes. They say they don't care enough about England. You're out here putting <laughs> putting shifts in the qualifiers for another country, and then you can potentially face that country. And then you 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 expect the media to just think, oh yeah, he's you know he's gonna sing the anthem, he's gonna do, he's gonna you know, give all, he'll give his all. No, if you're not dropping a ten out of ten of a hat trick, yeah, you can play any finish. You could be a centre back if you're not drop if you're not having a hat trick. They're gonna question that. They're going to be like, ooh, so... Being said, I guess if we were all of... We go back to our 18-year-old selves. If we were talented enough to play professional football at the highest level, who would you guys choose? Because everyone here can, I guess, uh, pick a different nation to represent. I guess, who would you guys choose? Um, I guess, why, if you want to answer that? I mean, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go first. Uh, obviously, with, with England and Ethiopia... You know, one's a lot better than the other. So, you know, it's one of those ones where I guess most people say if you're good enough to play for England, you'd usually pick England. Uh, But I might just be so jerks playing for Ethiopia. I actually like the way Ethiopia play. If you guys haven't seen them, they like to play like Barcelona all the time, but they haven't got the facilities playing like Barcelona. 
So they have loads of games where I think a game, let's say, I think for the next African qualifying, they played Malawi. We lost 2 1 to two pens with like 70% possession. And I cannot lie, that is the way I want to play. <laughs> so just it'll just be bad still. One touch passes and then every misplaced pass ends up a goal, but that'll be fun. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna play for a worse side, I'll have fun with it. So that's the only reason why I pick Ethiopia. If they were playing like Route One football, I don't think I'd pick them. But you know, I'm here for the tiki taka. I'd I'd choose England, no doubt. Um my options are maybe a bit better than Ethiopia, even though Ethiopia sounds like a lot of fun to watch. I might have to check them out. But like Trinidad and Tobago played in one World Cup and they weren't very good. Um, Antigua and Grenada were just no. And it's a bit like, yeah, as you said, Joseph, if you can play for England, you will play for England. But I'll give you an example. And I've, I've mentioned him before, Hudson Adoy, like He's got two World Cup teams, one that wants him and one that doesn't. For me, it's like, why would you not choose to play for Ghana? Like, see, see like, for example... Um, if he does break into the England team, which I highly doubt, I want him to, I think he's a great player, but like at the moment he's got Jared Bowen in front of him, not in the squad. Harvey Bones is Barnes, sorry, obviously in front of him, not in the squad. Marcus Edwards probably in front of him, playing Champions League, not in the squad. Um, and then you look at like, uh, uh, who was it Ecuador played? Ecuador played Senegal, and Ecuador had uh, Jeremy Sarmiento, who's basically an English kid who moved to Spain, then moved back to England with Brighton. But he's playing for Ecuador based on his parents. He's like, he, he's a good player. Like he looked really, really good against Senegal. And just a bit like, this is someone who's realistic about his prospects. He's not Hudson Odoi level talent, but he's realistic about his prospects. He's like, I can play a World Cup for Ecuador. Why wouldn't I? Kind of thing. Um, and you know what, Hudson Odoi. I don't know who's advising this guy, but he should have gone to Bayern Munich and somehow got talked into staying at Chelsea. He should have played for Ghana. And somehow convinced himself he can play for England. I don't know what's next for him, but I hope he does well in his career. But I just feel like he's full of bad decisions, man. Similar bottle of all you guys. Yeah, England, I guess. If you can play for England, pick England. And also, I guess we've all been raised, pretty much born and raised there. And it's when you look at, when I look at the England team as well, particularly this generation of England team, they look like guys that I personally would have grown up with. They look like people, like people I, I would see. Like on the block, I'd see in school, I'd see they represent the best of England. While you can disagree with, I guess, uh, some potentially some of the fan base or just, I guess, sometimes the way certain media outlets present um, the, the England national team, I think as a team and what they've got going on there, that is brilliant and it represents what England's about. And I think I, I put that shirt on with pride, I represent them. Um, but I won't lie to you, the fear naturally would be if you do perform poorly, comes into question. And that's always going to be something, as, as men of colour, as women of colour, that's always going to be something you've got to consider. And naturally, um, obviously, as I previously mentioned, that team I could represent is Bangladesh. Last, I guess, last score I checked upon them was, it may have been in a pre-qualifier, and they lost 8-0 to Vietnam. So, like, we're not, yeah, 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 listen, we're not, we're not the highest level I think the Bangladeshi FA may follow me on Twitter. So Ooh. we have to get talking. Listen, listen, we have to get talking. I've got, I got, I got to change it, man. I've got, I got to Exactly, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, on the, on the flip side of it, I think when you speak to um, fans of smaller clubs and they're like, because I'm a, a Chelsea fan and I think, I believe you two uh, guys are Arsenal fans, right? 
Yeah. So when you speak to fans of smaller clubs and they tell you about, you will never understand like the ecstasy of like winning a relegation game or just winning a small trophy or getting how much it means to us. Whereas like, I think as a big club fan, you take that for granted. And I think the same can be said about a national team. For England, every tournament, the expectation is win the trophy or it's a failure. Like, for sure, England will get credit for getting to the semi-finals, finals, but you're going to feel like you've lost. You're going to... It's going to always be negative at the end if you don't win it because that's the expectation, and rightly so. But with these smaller countries, I think, how much that means to a country and how much that... Probably as a personal milestone, how much that would mean. Going back to, like, I guess, uh, this tournament, I believe Canada um, really underperformed. In terms of performances, I think they were great. But um, in, ter- uh, in terms of performance, they were great, but they just didn't get scores. But to see Alphonse Davis score their first ever World Cup goal, he's naturally, as a Bayern player, he's going to be disappointed because he's used to winning. But that's a milestone in that country. That's potentially the start of something. And that's etched in history. Like, no one can take that away from him. Um, if, and, and I think that means so much. And I think he should be celebrated. I don't know how the uh, Canadian uh, media are, I guess... Uh, depicting their World Cup run, but I think the fact that they scored, the fact that they played so well, that should be a win. So, yeah, just going back to the original question, I would choose England, but I think playing for like a smaller side as Bangladesh, I think, I think just being in a random pitch in like Indonesia or like Vietnam in some random qualifier, losing eight playing goals. with like two. Remember that? Listen, man, no, no, losing eight one. Because if I get the goal, that would mean like the world to me. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, I just think. You'd, you'd enjoy it a lot more. For our final topic, uh, we're going to kick off with first looking at uh, Jürgen Klinsmann's uh, comments about Iran following their 2-0 win over Wales. And uh, sort of just lead into how that sort of, it kind of kicked off the tone to the narrative around the Iran-USA game and also just highlight other forms of commentary that we thought was a bit sus during this World Cup. But, you know, Jürgen Klinsmann, uh, he spoke a lot about, you know, that's their culture. And I think he used that, I think, on four different times in like a minute. And he kept he kept saying that was their culture, that was their culture. I mean, this was talking about, I think, about time-wasting and, you know, the dark arts of the game. Maybe a few naughty fouls. I mean, firstly, if, if you watch the game... Iran were the better side. This wasn't. They didn't win this game because of dark arts. They won this game because they, they they sort of passed through Wales. So that that bit is really weird. And secondly, I think something which you know some people argue is maybe language barriers. But then he, he also seemed to imply his culture to why the Guatemalan referee allowed these fouls to to go in, and. You know, I don't know what culture Guatemala and Iran share. I don't know whether they have a strong linked football in history. But, you know, I feel like the only link they kind of have is their, their skin colour you could, could arguably describe as as brown. So it was a bit, it was a bit weird. But what, what did you guys think of that? You know what? I know I'm in the minority when I say this. When I heard about it, I was like, oh, that's so bad, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at it, and I was like, from what I was seeing, I felt like what he was trying to say was, um, 
in terms of their like combativeness and stuff. And then afterwards he came out and said that's what he was trying to say. And I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of what I was thinking he meant anyway. Um, but I know, as I said, I know I'm in a minority when I think that. It's, who knows what, it sounded like what it sounded like, to be fair. Um, but I don't know, I just gave him the benefit of the, of the doubt, sorry, personally. I think it's kind of like a wider thing. I guess with punditry across the World Cup, it would seem um, there's a lot of pundits that clearly only follow um, the top European sides and they know nothing about the other nations. So they discredit them when they don't understand certain things. So naturally, when you also touched earlier about the Saudi Arabian offside trap, that was something they drilled for the past year. They've been... They, it, it's not a style of play you just think of like a week ahead of the tournament. That's been, they've been leading up to that. They've been trying that system for the past six months. And I guess that simply goes with Iran, how they did pretty much. Um, they outplayed Wells. They deserved, they deserved that victory. So I think there's a bit of ignorance in the sense that, yeah, it, just because we don't understand it, it's, it's like, um, surely it can't be good football. Surely it can't be good. So, I guess that's um, my stance generally on some of the poor commentary. But with that situation, uh, particularly saying it's in their culture to cheat or time waste or whatever, I've, I grew up on um, hearing Italian football romanticising, being romanticised in the UK through the dark arts and how it's like a beautiful side of football that we don't understand as much. So when you see, when you hear it in the same breath, when they speak about um, some of the Arab nations, the African nations, even the Asian nations doing it, it's no longer romanticized. So, so when South Americans do it and when um, Italians do it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful art that we need to learn and it's like there's skill to it. But when other nations do it, it's not as beautiful. So it's, it's, it's a bit contradictory in my opinion. So if personally, if you're going to call something a shithouse tactic, one rule for everyone, let's, let's do that. Um, I'll happily do that. Like with when we, in, in club football, when a team park the bus, when they play negative football, we say that. We don't, for, for, for example, Chelsea, we don't say that's beautiful defensive, well, sometimes we do with Mourinho, but like generally, when you see a crappy top team playing poor defensive football, it's poor defensive football, but it's also like poor defensive football. So, yeah, I guess that's my stance on it. Similarly, I agree with um, what Adam said earlier, but it may have been a bit of, a, I guess, mistranslation where he did try to say they were combat, combative. So, yeah, I guess I'll give him the benefit of the doubt from that. But, yeah, generally, I just think overall it's just been a bit poor. And, um, yeah, th that particular, I guess, situation, um, I guess, kind of exemplifies it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you're completely right, especially on the punditry thing. Sometimes it can be really frustrating. You can tell... One pundit who's actually like taken the effort to actually do some research and know what they're talking about, and another who's just there because they're like kicked a ball for a few years, really. Like sometimes I'm, I'm looking at people like, uh, uh, you know, I really like Joe Cole for example. I think he's a decent geezer, but he chats absolute rubbish. Like he uh, he came out of that whole comment I tweeted about as well about. Um, uh, I don't know who he's talking about, maybe like Cameroon or something. He's like, oh, yeah, 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 they've got pace and power. I'm not sure you could name a single Cameroonian player. He's just chatting the stereotypes. Ghana, Portugal game. 
And yeah, and, and it was funny because Portugal were the team that are playing on the count are using their pace and effort. Exactly. And then just like, who would I rather watch actually telling me what to think about football? Like a Julian Laurence or a Gabriel Marcotti or Joe Cole? It's, just, it's night and day. So I think maybe at some point they should actually try and move some voices in that actually have an interest in what they're talking about rather than just turning up for a World Cup because they kicked a ball once. Yeah, well, what I want to say is if they want some guys that you know maybe know a little bit more about football to, to come and do a bit of punditry, I think, well... We don't know enough, man. We're, we're not football people, as they say. <laughs> but yeah, hopefully as the tournament goes on, or maybe as a bit of a pessimistic of me says, as it becomes predominantly more European sides in the later stages, maybe the punditry will, will improve. But, uh, you know, that's a hope. And uh, but that I think that, that sort of wraps it up for uh, today's episode. Uh, Adam, thank you for joining us. And uh, Aaron, thank you for uh, joining us as always. Uh, this is Beyond the Pond and we'll talk to you guys next time.